Morning, y'all. Have to say, I've gotten the message loud and clear. On, I've never had quite so many people concerned about the length of my message as this morning. I have received a couple death threats from the Italians in the group, but nonetheless, if you will open your Bibles to page one, we will begin working through the entire Old Testament. Uh, We are in the middle of a series uh, this morning that we're calling Outliers, and we're defining it uh, it, as ordinary people from the pages of the Old Testament who find themselves, for one reason or another, in an extraordinary set of circumstances, and as a result, their lives will never be the same again. Outliers. You know, I I think that we all look for acceptance in our lives, and whether it be from a parent. You know, some of us have grown up with very critical moms and dads, and so all of our life we just long for the acceptance of our parents. Or it could even be a husband or a wife, or even our own kids. We all want to have a sense that we belong to something, right? And I have to say that the word grace is all about acceptance. Grace is a word that we typically use to describe a thing of beauty. We would say that a ballerina or a swan, they're graceful. Um, They call the Queen of England her grace. If somebody is especially kind, we say that they are gracious. But grace is not always that attractive. In fact, Someone went as far as to say that grace is not a blue-eyed blonde. The grace of the Bible is the kind of grace that ain't always pretty or fair. It's the kind of grace where you extend special favor to somebody who doesn't even deserve it. They haven't earned it, and they can never, ever repay it. Every once in a while, we come across a scene in the Bible where we see that kind of grace lived out. And we find one of these moments in the life of David. And the story we're going to talk about today, in my opinion, is one of the greatest illustrations of grace in the entire Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about an outlier by the name of Mephibosheth. I've worked all week long to be able just to say that name. In fact, let's all say that together, just in case you're judging me on that. Here we go. Mephibosheth. Bless you. That was very good. Well, uh, this morning, all I really want to do is this. I just want to tell you the story about a young man with a funky name who found grace and acceptance from a king. His story actually begins as a parenthetical note in the Bible. Literally, it is a parenthesis. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So why is this nurse in such a hurry to whisk this child away to safety? Why did she believe that this child was in danger? Well, as it happens, Mephibosheth 
was the son of Jonathan and the grandson of Saul, who was one of the great kings of Israel. And Saul's family and his servants have just received the news that King Saul, his son Jonathan, and two of his other sons were all just killed in a very terrible battle against their arch enemies, the Philistines. And this meant that the throne was now open game. And it was very likely that David, of David and Goliath fame, David the shepherd boy, would become the new king of Israel. And in that day and in that age, it was the custom that the first order of business for the new king taking over the kingdom would be to wipe out the, in, the old king's entire family, especially the male children. And they did this to ensure that nobody would be left out there who may someday come back and try to kill them in an effort to try to regain the throne in their family. Well, David had no intention of following this tradition, but the family of Saul didn't know that. And so they hurried to escape, thinking that David would soon be coming after them to put them all to death. And they were especially concerned about a five-year-old child named Mephibosheth. Because now that the king and all of his sons were dead, he was next in line to inherit the throne. If David wanted Saul's family dead in order to protect the throne this child would be first on his hit list. So as the family was making this quick escape, something happens. In spite of the fact that the nurse was doing what she thought was best for him, in her haste, she drops Mephibosheth, and he receives an injury so severe that he becomes crippled in both feet. He can no longer walk. And in that day and in that age, when you become crippled, you can't get around like you can today in all the advanced technologies. You just become a nothing, a social outcast. And just like that, Mephibosheth goes from being an heir to the throne, living as a prince in the palace, to becoming a poor, crippled, orphan child. He was now living in a town called Lodabar, which is this kind of nasty little town that was for peasants. And it was a long way from the palace in more ways than one. With every passing year, I am sure that his sorrow deepened until eventually he thought himself to have no value at all. Mephibosheth was an outsider with no place to fit in, and he had lost all Hope. You know, the more I read the Bible, the more I discover that many of the stories of the Bible are highly symbolic about our relationship with God. And it holds true in this story as well. Because we have a lot more in common with Mephibosheth than maybe we would ever think. We go through this world at times lost. I know I have. Looking for a place to belong, looking for a place to fit in, we're like orphans looking for a place to call home. Spiritually crippled by the sin in our lives, and instead of living this, in this relationship with God, this intimacy with the Father, we live in some far-off place like Lodabar, far away from the palace of God in more ways than one. 
a place where ragamuffins gather to hide and to lick their wounds because everyone feels like there's no way they can ever be accepted. No way they can ever feel like they are worthy to be called a children, a child of God after the things that we've done. But the one thing that I think we all have in common is that we're all just looking for a little bit of mercy in a very harsh world. So what you need to know, the reason why uh, David never went after Saul's family was because his best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan, who was the father of Mephibosheth. And you can read this beautiful story of friendship uh, that existed between Jonathan and David in the Bible. But just before Jonathan dies in this battle, as a result of Jonathan at one point saving David's life, David and Jonathan make a pact. If anything were to ever happen to him, David promises that he will take care of the rest of Jonathan's family for the rest of their lives. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20 says that David made that pact because he loved Jonathan so deeply. Well, that was one of the last times that David ever saw Jonathan alive before his tragic death. And in the meantime, as the years went by, David became an extremely successful king. He took the land of Israel to places that they never imagined. And over time, he grew in wealth and favor with the people of Israel. I mean, his approval rating was off the charts. But as successful as he was, it could never replace the loss that he felt from the void that was left behind from his best friend, Jonathan. And I'm sure that it was in a moment of reflection or in a time of pain when he was feeling that loss that he accidentally discovers that Jonathan, his best friend, has a son who's still alive. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1-5, through 5, David is just in the palace and he asks, Is anyone still left out there in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yeah, I'm your servant. And the king asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul for whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. And Ziba said, well, he's in the house of Machir, son of Emil, and he's over in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought to him from Lodabar. Now, what I love about this passage is that when the servant says there's still a son of Jonathan who is still alive, David can't get past that line. He's so excited to hear that his best friend has a son that is still out there that he completely either misses or just doesn't even care about the next line when he says, but he's crippled in both feet. David doesn't ask, well, how crippled is he? He 
doesn't ask, well, is he going to be a lot of work, or is he still mentally with it, or what's the deal? Because in that day, again, somebody who was crippled like that was thought to be a social outcast because they can't get around at all. But David didn't care about any of that. He just said, bring him to me. And so David immediately sends for Mephibosheth, who's now older and has a family of his own. And I imagine, I just imagine the scene when the king's men ride into this nasty, drab town of Lodabar, full of peasants. And here they come in all their glory. And they pull up in front of Mephibosheth's house, which I imagine to be this kind of dilapidated old home, because they want to bring him to the king. And I'm guessing, again, I'm just guessing, that the king's men never said anything about why it is the king wanted to see him. So I'm also imagining that Mephibosheth is probably assuming that this is it. That David has finally discovered who he is, and now he's going to be killed. Well, the story goes on in verses 6 and 7. It says, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David says, Mephibosheth. And I love this verse right here because there is an exclamation point behind it, which means he is so excited to see the son of his best friend. Mephibosheth says, I'm your servant. We don't know whether he's trembling, or, but he has some look of fear in his face that David says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Do not underestimate the magnitude of this scene. There is a crippled young man who has probably been living in poverty as a social outcast who is standing in front of the king waiting to get whacked. And instead of being put to death, this king says, you will eat at my table. And not only that, but I will give you wealth beyond your wildest imagination. And I just imagine Mephibosheth just standing there or sitting there or laying there or wherever he's at in front of the king. And he's just so overwhelmed, he doesn't even know what to say. But in verse 8, he says, he bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. That was a Hebrew expression for an embarrassing piece of garbage, a throwaway. It was obvious that Mephibosheth had a very low opinion of himself, and he didn't think he was worthy of whatever it is that David was putting on him. And the cool thing about David is he doesn't even acknowledge that. He doesn't even say, yeah, I'm such a good guy that I'm showing pity for this little crippled guy and all that. He just simply calls for the servant of Saul, Ziba, who used to work for Saul's family. And he says, Ziba, this is Mephibosheth. And you and your staff will now be serving him for the rest of your lives. And David says, and furthermore, I'll be giving him back all of the land that his grandfather owned, which as king was huge. And the most powerful line in that passage he will always eat at my table. And the servant knew that eating at the king's table meant that Mephibosheth had just become part of the royal family. 
And in verse 11, the story ends and says, So Mephibosheth always ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. The great King David adopted this poor, dirty, crippled orphan. And he didn't just take him in and show pity on him or feel sorry for him, but he gave him the full rights and privileges of being one of David's own sons. Mephibosheth had become the son of a king. In the New Testament, in Romans, we catch a glimpse of the connection between Mephibosheth and me. It says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, those who are followers of God, those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, they are the sons and daughters of God. And you don't have to be afraid. Because you have been adopted by God. And since we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and we share in his inheritance with his son, Jesus Christ. I think we have a lot more in common with Mephibosheth than we may think. There are times when we live so far from God. We want to do it our way. And we become so full of sin and disobedience So many flaws, so much baggage, so much guilt. How could God ever love the real me? I don't even love the real me. But here is the essence of the Christian faith. We are a messed up people with an amazing capacity to screw up our lives. And we do all the things that we want to do. We sin, we fall, we mess up. And not one of us have lived a life worthy of this one thing. While we were yet a bunch of messed up sinners, Jesus died for me. And he died for you. And that one act of mercy leveled the playing field where everybody all of a sudden became the same. If you're somebody who has sinned in your life, and the Bible says that we all have, then there ain't nobody any better than anybody else. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how bad your sin is or isn't or the color of your skin, or how much money you have or don't have, everybody is looked upon as the same by God, and we're all invited to eat at his table, to become a child of God. And sometimes, that grace ain't all that pretty, because most of us have some pretty ugly stuff in our lives. To the point that when we understand the depth of our sin and all of a sudden we feel the healing grace of God, we are overwhelmed to the point that we stand there and say, how could you ever love one like me? A few years ago I was uh, talking to my sister. This was before she was married and she's now married to this wonderful guy. And... 
they were living together and they were trying to hide the fact that they were living together and while everybody knew about it, they thought it still was like this big secret. And my favorite aunt, our favorite aunt, was coming for a visit and she was afraid what our aunt was going to think about her. So she was all upset and uptight and anxious about it. And she and I are both pastor's kids and have experienced the judgment and guilt of the church. So she was a little concerned. So she called me for a little brotherly advice. And she asked me what she should do. And I said, sis, look, you can't go around worrying all the time about what other people are going to think about you or you'll never be happy. You'll never be freed up to be who you are. And she said, well, how do you deal with all those church people talking about you guys? And I said, well, the good news is all of my church people, they all know I'm a messed up dude and they love me anyway. I said, which, by the way, is the definition of grace for me. When people know how messed up you are, they know about the junk in your life, and they love you anyway, that's the truest form of grace that I know. I said, once your stuff is out there, you can't pretend to be something that you're not because your image is blown. And let me tell you, my image got blown a long time ago. So I said, the best thing you can do is just stand up at the next holiday gathering and just announce to the whole family that you and this guy are living together and just be done. Like, just be done. I said, and you would be amazed at how freed up you will feel once everybody knows. And then I said, you know what? I promise you this. I promise you that we'll all love you just the same. And I'll love you even more. Just being able to see the realness of your life. And that's exactly what happened. It's not until we stop protecting our image and stop worrying about what everybody else thinks if they see our weaknesses, our flaws, our baggage, our junk. It's not until we stop worrying about everybody else's stuff that we can finally get the fact that we need forgiveness. We need Jesus. And when we truly understand the depth of our sin, and we truly understand the healing power of His grace, it changes everything to know that there's nothing that I can do to make him love me anymore and nothing I can do to make him love me any less so my hope for us is this may we all get freed up about our flaws our stuff our failings that we can finally have the strength and the courage to say to those who know us and even to those who judge us, you think that about me? Ah, I'm even worse than that. But I am a child of God and I will always eat at his table.